0: And direction in the Holy Spirit that I may speak the words that you have determined to be needful for your people to hear. But more importantly than anything, Father, I thank you that the Holy Spirit speaks directly to our hearts. We love you, Father. We worship you. And we magnify the name of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's start in our Bibles this morning with Mark chapter 11 as we continue the series on faith that we've been in for a number of weeks. Jesus comes upon a a fig tree that he expects to have fruit on it. It looks healthy. It looks vibrant. It's got green leaves all over it, but it doesn't have any figs. So Jesus curses the fig tree. He says within the earshot of his disciples, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And the next morning they came back by that place, past the same tree, but it doesn't look the same. Something has drastically changed. It's dried up from the roots. Now I don't know if my imagination is the best way to describe this, but the only thing that I can really relate to what the fig tree looked like after Jesus cursed it, the morning after Jesus cursed it, was maybe a tree that was struck by lightning. There is absolutely no trace of life left in that tree. Now we know if if he had taken a chainsaw to it and cut it down, it would still have green leaves on it by the next morning. It would take a while for the life of the tree to run out. But the power of the words that he spoke killed that thing almost instantly. And his disciples saw the tree and brought it to his attention. They really didn't ask a question, but there seems to be one implied. When Peter said, Master, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. In verse 22 of Mark chapter 11, Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. That could be translated a couple of different ways. One way is that it could be translated, have the faith of God. We've sometimes coined the phrase from that, have the God kind of faith. Well, What kind of faith would God have other than the God kind? So where he's speaking to the disciples, he's telling them how he just did this miraculous work uh, almost before their eyes. He says it was the operation of this thing called faith. And then he describes it. Verse 23, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus tells us that words are the key. We know from what Jesus said, as well as many other scriptures, that faith is a product of your heart. The heart being the spirit of man, the center of man, the, the, the eternal part of man, the real part of man. Romans 10.10, 10, Paul said, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we know that faith is a product of the heart. So he's saying words spoken from your heart can change circumstances. Now the the, the, um, warning here or the instruction in this verse you can clearly see is not doubt in your heart. Well what's doubt in the heart? We remember the story in Numbers chapter 13 of where the 12 spies went into the promised land. Ten of them came back with an evil report. Hebrews chapter 4 calls it a, a report of unbelief or unbelief of their hearts. See, the reality is, folks, whatever is in your heart is what's going to come out of your mouth. Jesus told us in, Mark, in uh, Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, what the Bible is trying to get across to us, and you, co- you cannot overemphasize the importance of this. It is of utmost importance. If you don't have a, some kind of understanding of this thing called faith, you can't be saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 Faith is necessary to be born again. Faith is necessary to come into the family of God. Faith is necessary to receive eternal life. How can you overestimate the importance of faith? Jesus tells us, however, that faith goes a lot further than many or most Christians will accept. He says faith is not something just defined Or restricted to entering into the family of God or being born again. He says faith will change circumstances in your life. That's exactly what he did when he cursed the fig tree. The results were obvious to the disciples. Jesus said faith changes things. Faith changes things. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Where is the scriptural precedent or foundation for casting a tree into the water or uh, uh, uprooting a tree or moving a mountain? Why didn't Jesus say, whatever you find is a promise in my word. If you say that, it will come to pass. He uses a much broader Spectrum or scope for what this thing called faith will do. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, the mountain represents any problem or any obstacle, any circumstance, any situation that hinders you in any way whatsoever. He didn't qualify it, he didn't even restrict it to saying if there are obstacles in your path that keep you from serving God, use faith on those and it'll change it. He uses faith as this blanket, overall, overreaching principle that will change anything and everything on the earth if you use it correctly and obey the laws of faith. He goes further in verse 24. He says, Therefore I say unto you, in other words, the therefore is based on the principle that he just identified in verse 23. Because believing in your heart and saying with your mouth will change anything in this present, this physical realm. Because of that, he said, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Because faith works by believing in the heart and speaking with the mouth. The prayer of faith, the prayer of faith will enable you to receive anything there is from God. Now verse 23, the principle of faith, he's not talking about receiving something from God. He's talking about using the authority that's been given to us by Jesus Christ on this earth to change whatever situation needs to be changed in our lives. Verse 24 talks about prayer working in faith or the prayer of faith whereby we receive something from God. But that's a totally different thing based on the same principle. But it's a totally different thing. Now we found a number of things in this series. We found a number of situations that are described in the Bible or given to us in the Bible. Where faith made changes to bring about the will of God in somebody's life. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Let's remind ourselves of a few of these. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 5 And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goes. And to another come, and he comes. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. He identified the centurion as having great faith. How does he know he has great faith? Because of the things he's just described about his understanding of authority. He's saying, because I understand authority... All you have to do is speak the word. You don't have to come to my house. Just speak the word. Now, folks, most people were healed in Jesus' ministry through physical touch. He ministered healing in a a variety of ways. But the uh, four Gospels tell us more about people being healed in Jesus' ministry by physical touch than anything else. I think most Christians would opt for or choose For Jesus to appear and touch them physically that would be I would guess that would be a catalyst for most Christians to identify their faith with the centurion said you don't have to do that no need for that because authority is not exercised just by physical touch now we can't discount the fact that people when they touch Jesus or when he laid hands on them the healing power of God went into them and affected the healing and a cure from their bodies. Certainly that's a true event that happened over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry. But the centurion said the same authority, the same power is released by the spoken word as when Jesus laid hands on the sick and healed them again through physical touch. Jesus marvels at the fact that this centurion understands that that's how authority works and is willing to take the spoken word in the place of Jesus touching his servant physically. And Jesus calls that great faith. He calls that great faith. Well, if it was great faith when Jesus was here on the earth, wouldn't it be great faith today? Therefore, if we come to the same understanding that the centurion describes that he had about authority, we can expect the same results he got, or else God's a respecter of persons. But the Bible says God is not a respecter of persons, that he never changes. So if it worked for the centurion, it'll work for us. So this characteristic of faith, one of the characteristics of faith at least, is the understanding that the spoken word controls what takes place. The spoken word is the key to the release and the exercise of authority. In Romans chapter 4, we see another example. This example is Abraham's faith. Beginning in verse 17, as it is written... Here's the promise that God made to Abraham. I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed even God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Folks I want you to realize that Abraham imitated God in these two ways and that's why these scriptures identify Abraham as the father of faith. Abraham identified God in two of the outstanding characteristics that the Bible reveals to us about our father. He quickens the dead. He makes dead things alive. The second characteristic of our Heavenly Father that's mentioned here is that He calls things that be not as though they were. God speaks of things in a finished state or condition. Even though they may not be un, they may be unfinished, they may not be finished. In the circumstances of our lives. God calls things that be not as though they were. Now folks when God calls things that be not as though they were. Those things that he's calling. Have to become what he's saying. They don't have a choice. The things he's talking about is inanimate objects. Circumstances. Situations. He's not talking about people. Wouldn't it be nice if we could exercise authority over people and make them do what we wanted them to do? Wouldn't that be great? But even Jesus couldn't do that. Jesus couldn't make people that would not believe, believe. He couldn't change their state from unbelief to faith because it's up to them. It's not up to God. See, there's an idea in the church world that God's in control of everything. Well, if God's in control of everything, then that means he's deciding who gets saved and who doesn't. That means he's picking winners and losers. That means he's deciding who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Now, how can that line up with the rest of the word? The Bible says there's no variable in this, neither changing, no changing of any type with God, neither the shadow of change with God. That means he has to want the same results for everybody. That's why Jesus had to die for the sins of the world, not just the sins of those who would receive him and accept him as Lord and Savior. God never changes. There is no variableness in him. Therefore, God can't want one thing for somebody and something less for another person. He can't want hell for some and heaven for others. The Bible instead says that God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth well if God is pulling the strings and controlling everything on the earth since we already know that he wills for everybody to be saved why didn't everybody get saved if he has the ability and the power to do something about it and we all would have to agree that he does then why isn't everybody saved when the Bible clearly says he wants them to be because man has authority on the earth Because God gave authority, the earth's authority, to mankind when he created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God didn't take it back. He didn't take back that authority just because man fell. Man still has authority. That's what makes the centurion's understanding so important to Jesus. That's why Jesus marveled at the centurion's great faith. Because he understood that man had authority. He understood that Jesus had authority over sickness and disease. So all Jesus has to do is speak the word. He could have come to the centurion's house. He could have laid hands on the servant. And the servant would certainly have been healed. Because the same faith that the centurion is exercising toward Jesus with a request to speak the word only. Would certainly have worked if Jesus came to his house. I'm sure he's heard many stories about people being healed. By Jesus laying hands on them or people reaching out and touching it. So the same faith would have worked in both circumstances. But Jesus marvels at the fact that the man is willing to accept the spoken word as well as or instead of any other form of healing for his servant. We should understand the same thing, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we have the same faith or even greater faith because the life of God is in us than the centurion had? Certainly. Certainly. Again, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that that most of the church world, most of the modern-day church, if they even know that they're spirit beings, really don't have too much of a comprehension about what that means. But remember what Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your spirit is going to speak whatever you believe. Now, that includes Christians that don't believe anything because they don't know anything about them being spirit beings. That includes Christians that don't know what the Word says, that don't know the authority that man has on the earth, that don't know what God has done for us through Jesus' sacrifice. And they would have no way of knowing whatsoever, no way of knowing how to put the right things in your heart so that the right things can come out. I think one of the greatest works of the enemy is to deceive Christians from knowing who they are and what belongs to them. Because if somebody knows who they are in Christ, knows the fact, and it is a fact, thank God it is a fact, that we've been made the righteousness of God in him. If they don't know that, and they don't know the way to put the right things into your heart, or to develop faith in your heart, Is by speaking God's word, then they're never going to be equipped to defeat the enemy when he raises obstacles in our path or to receive from God what Jesus has already done for us outside of just forgiveness of sins. No wonder Jesus is marveling at this guy, no wonder he's amazed. I haven't found so great faith, no, not in Israel. The implication is the people to whom God's word was given, the children of Israel, should be the ones that have great faith rather than, than the Gentiles. They said, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. The same thing's true where Abraham's faith is concerned. The Bible is saying, and it commends Abraham, it, it uses him as the example of the father of faith. Abraham imitated God by bringing life to dead things. How did he do that? Well, the principle of faith is what you believe in your heart comes out of your mouth. So he begins to speak life unto his body. Remember the promise that was given unto him was that he and Sarah would have a child. But at the time that this takes place, They're too old to have children. Barrenness is their circumstance. Now, we don't know why they were barren. We don't know if there was a problem with Abraham or if there was a problem with Sarah or if there was a problem with both of them. But certainly by the time that Abraham gets to be about 100 years old and Sarah is 90, there's an overriding problem, and that's called age. But God tells Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a child when they're past childbearing years and the conditions of their body are such that neither of their bodies is working in no, in a normal way that would be necessary to bring forth a child. But what does Abraham do? He imitates God. He acts like God. And folks, I know that when Jesus said things like that, when he called himself or called God his father, the Jews wanted to kill him for that every time he said it because they considered that making himself equal with God. Well, children should act like their fathers, shouldn't they? Children of the devil certainly act like their father. So shouldn't children of God act like God? That's why this is told to us in Romans chapter 4 because the two characteristics that are identified as we said before is that Abraham first spoke life back into his body and he called things that be not as though they were. Now how did he call things that be not as though they were? He agreed with God that his name was the father of many nations. He began to call himself what God said of him. Folks, that's one of the best ways to take hold of anything that God has promised to us. Begin to say who he says you are. Abraham didn't wait till he had children to say that. If he had done that, he never would have had the children that grew into the great nation of Israel. He called things that be not as though they were. He recognized that the the lack of life or barrenness in his and Sarah's body was not sufficient to keep, from, keep the promise of God from coming to pass. He accepted that the word of God was over anything and everything that he could see or feel. He considered not his own body now dead. Doesn't mean he denied it. Doesn't mean he denied the circumstances or the facts. It was a fact, a physical fact, that he and Sarah were both too old to have a child but he didn't consider that he didn't let that be the final word see folks no matter what our circumstance is it's not the final word Abraham staggered not through unbelief but was strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform now how did Abraham go When he was 99 years old, the Bible tells us that the Lord appeared to him when he was going to deal with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and pass judgment on them. This was about 99 years of age for Abraham, according to what the Scripture says. And God talked to him about being a father and the promise that he had made to him. Abraham laughed. Abraham thought it was too late for that promise to come to pass but here at age 100 when he has a child he's what the bible says is fully persuaded that what god was able to do, uh, what god said he would would do he was able to perform how did he go from laughing at the promise of god which is an indication to me that he didn't believe that it would come to pass how did he go in the matter of just a few months according uh, assuming that Sarah carried Isaac's full term. How did he go from being unable to have children. To being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. Folks there's only one thing that brings you to, a fully persuaded, to being fully persuaded about anything. And that is you saying it to yourself. See when you first start saying that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because the Bible says so it starts off as a whisper because we're judging that truth against the things that we know and experience in our lives but the more that we say it the more the man on the inside, the real us, the heart of the spirit of man begins to accept the truth and the truth is whatever God says Everything else has to line up with what God says, not the other way around. So Abraham starts off saying that he's the father of many nations. I'm sure he felt foolish saying that, especially if he was calling himself by his new name to other people. If it's just family, we don't care too much about what family thinks. But if it's somebody else, then it becomes serious. So I'm sure that there were times where Abraham felt foolish. Even if somebody didn't challenge him on it, he probably thought, I bet these people think I'm crazy. Here I am calling myself the father of many nations. And I only have one child, and that's by the handmaid that works for my wife. But the more you say it, the more you declare what the Bible says, what God says about who you are, the more persuaded you become until eventually you get to the place where you just accept it to be true no matter what just because God says it no matter the circumstance no matter the conditions now do you remember the story of Jonah remember Jonah was being sent to Nineveh the capital city of the Assyrian Empire And God said that Jonah should go and preach and tell them that within just a very short period of time, destruction was coming upon their nation if they didn't repent. Well, Jonah didn't want them to repent. He hated the Assyrians and with good reason. And so he went to Joppa and started sailing away in an opposite direction from where God wanted him to be. You remember the storm arose. The people figured out this is not some regular thing. The God of nature must be after somebody. Who is it? And they finally identified that it was Jonah. And Jonah says to him, Your only hope is to throw me overboard. Now, what was Jonah expecting when he got thrown overboard? First of all, nobody, much that I know of, would have admitted that they were the reason and the cause because the end result would have been that they would throw him overboard then what is he going to do he finally talks him into doing it and he gets swallowed up by a great fish now Jonah does some interesting things really interesting things in the, heart, in the belly of that fish now folks I want you to understand something Jonah is surrounded by fish his life is fish I'm sure the circumstances weren't very pleasant in that fish. The Bible talks about seaweed wrapped around his head. I'm not sure what the the digestive system of a fish is. But whatever breaks things down that the fish eats is now Jonah's environment. Everything about what Jonah is experiencing is fish. And this is what Jonah says, surrounded by fish. He said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. He calls his surroundings, he calls the environment, he calls the fish that he's in the middle of a lying vanity. Now why is it a lying vanity? It's a physical reality. So it's not lying in that that sense. How is it a lying vanity? Because it opposes what God said that he was going to send Jonah to do. God's plan was to get Jonah to Nineveh. And so as far as Jonah is concerned, now think of it. Here he is. He's a prophet, Old Testament prophet. This is the only thing we know about his life. But he had some kind of knowledge of God to where he understood that there comes a certain point in time where no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the obstacle is, nothing can stop what God said will be from being. So he calls this fish a lying vanity. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Jonah recognizes even in the heart of the fish, the belly of the fish, he recognizes that there's mercy available for him. Even though he disobeyed God and tried to sail in the other direction, He recognizes that there is mercy available for anybody who is surrounded by fish. Now, folks, I don't know what your circumstance is, but if you're just as encircled or encased or held by, just like Jonah was held by the fish, there's mercy for you and me too. How do we get to that place of mercy? Jonah started thanking God for delivering him. He began to speak in line with what he knew from his heart, the center of himself, the real man on the inside. He began to give thanks to God. And so God sent the fish to the shores of Nineveh and had the fish vomit Jonah out. Now, folks, that's quite an entrance into a city. And I'm certain that there was somebody that witnessed this. I'm sure that the word got out. And it might have had something to do with the the results that he got when he did preach to the Ninevites. They did repent, and, and destruction was averted or avoided. Who wouldn't want to listen to the guy that came by fish? and got vomited out now what did he look like when he came out yeah really he might have had that seaweed wrapped around his head still again I don't know what the the digestive system of a fish is but if there's any acidic nature that breaks down food then it's going to be reflected in his skin This is something I want to see the tape of when we get to heaven. (laughs) But think about what he said. He certainly didn't say it based on his circumstances. He certainly didn't say it based on his surroundings. He said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. See, all the things that the devil tells you is the reason why You can't be healed or you can't receive God's best or you can't have what the Bible says is yours. All those things that he tries to use as evidence against you are lying vanities. They're lying vanities. So what do we conclude from seeing Jonah? Jonah refused to talk fish. Once he got himself straight and said, all right, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. He never spoke fish. He spoke the mercies of God. He spoke deliverance. He spoke what God said would be. And if you boil it down, everybody that the Bible identifies as having great faith or operating in some successful uh, measure or level of faith, that's exactly what they did as well. That's exactly what they did as well. Now turn back with me to Mark chapter 11 and let's look at verse 24. Again, verse 22 is have faith in God or have the God kind of faith. Here's what the God kind of faith looks like. Verse 23, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. You're going to have whatever you say, folks. Whether a person speaks from a heart of unbelief, they'll have the destruction that they speak. Or if a person speaks faith from their heart based on what God's word says, they'll have what they say. They'll have the blessings that they speak. But notice again, verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, because your words carry power, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, Believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. So the prayer of faith is the prayer that believes it receives when it prays. Because of that, the prayer of faith always ends in the glad confession, it's mine, I have it now. It's mine, I have it now. Now since we see the characteristics of successful faith, great faith or successful faith, is to use Jonah's example, a refusal to talk fish. A refusal to talk circumstance, a refusal to stop, to uh, talk obstacles, a refusal to speak according to whatever is the situation and circumstances of our life, then that means the prayer of faith, once prayed, can never be gone back home. Once the words of faith are spoken, you can never turn back if you're going to receive. You can never turn back. The prayer of faith is the prayer that calls things that be not as though it were. The prayer of faith is the prayer that quickens the dead, speaks life into dead things. See, the plan or the purpose of the vision that God has given you may seem to be dead because it's taken so long and it's been avoided for so many years. But God never changes you can renew your vision in a moment of time so many times when people are believing God for healing the devil will come and use the circumstance whether it's pain whether it's symptoms whatever it might be the devil will use those physical facts to try to dissuade you from believing that you can truly be healed But once the prayer of faith is prayed, once you come into the condition or the circumstance to pray the prayer that believes it receives when it prays, then you have a responsibility to never talk sickness from that point forward, to never talk pain, to never talk symptoms. And that's the kind of faith that receives from God. That's the kind of faith, and only that kind of faith will receive from God. So what's your fish? What is your circumstance that you have to choose to look away from and instead look unto the Word of God? Whatever that is, you have a responsibility, and it's a requirement, it's a criteria, if you're going to receive from God. You have to speak what God's Word says. You have to speak deliverance. You have to speak healing. You have to speak blessings instead of the circumstance that contradicts what God's Word says. Smith Wilkersworth once said, If you pray ten times about any one thing, you pray nine times in unbelief. See, once the prayer of faith is prayed, because we believe that we receive when we pray, we can't ask God for it again. We can't ask God for it again. Jonah didn't pray over and over and over again to be vomited out of the fish's belly. He made one commitment, that is, okay, God, I'll surrender. And then he recognized that everything that kept him from God's purpose for his life was a lying vanity. In the same way, folks, the Bible says Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. And with his stripes you were healed. That means no matter what symptom of sickness comes. That means no matter what a sickness is diagnosed to be. That means no matter how long it's been or how severe it is. It doesn't in and of itself have the power to keep you out of the healing power. The healing mercy and the healing goodness of God. We have our part. That is to believe we receive healing when we pray for healing. Based on the foundation, that prayer having the foundation of the scripture, and uh, 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 at least the one scripture that we just referred to and the many others that are in the Bible. Because Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses, with his stripes you were healed. That means we can't talk sickness anymore. That means we can't talk symptoms anymore. That means we can't talk pain anymore. That means we can only talk healing if we're going to receive the answer to that promise. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We better put an abundance of God's Word in our hearts so that out of that abundance, the first thing that comes out of our mouth, no matter what circumstance occurs, no matter what the devil does, no matter what the, certain, the situation turns into our first and foremost things that we speak, the words that come from our mouth, are words of healing and blessing and deliverance. You can't talk doubt and receive things by faith. If you're going to be a faith child of a faith God, you're going to have to say only what the word says. And that's what the, the centurion did. He said, speak the word only. Speak the word only that's the way we're going to have to live speak the word only speak the word only remember in Romans chapter 4 one of the characteristics of Abraham's great faith he was strong in faith number one giving glory to God giving glory to God he's praising God for the answer before he can see the answer And secondly, he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Now, folks, turn with me to to, uh, James chapter 5. Let me close with this. Beginning in verse 14, James asked, and James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He said, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Folks, I want you to realize from the question that he asked, the implication is there should not be any sick in the church. Is there any sick in the church? Is there any sick among you? Well, he certainly wouldn't be writing that way today. Because there'd be no need to ask the question. So the church is supposed to be sickness free. Just as the church is supposed to be sin free. Because Jesus paid the same price which was his blood for sin and sickness. The Bible could not be clearer on that. Doesn't mean everybody accepts it. But it's an undisputable truth. So he says, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, let me, uh, let me make a comment about this, something Brother Hagen told us. He was acquainted with P.C. Nelson. P.C. Nelson, they called him Dad Nelson. P.C. Nelson was one of the foremost authorities, probably the, the foremost authority, on the Greek language in all of America at the time that he was around. And that would have been in the 1930s that Brother Hagin would spend some time with him. Brother Hagin said that somebody at a, I don't know if it's a meeting or whatever they had, but there was a group of ministers that was talking to uh, Dad Nelson, and they asked him how many languages he could read and write. He said 32. So we're talking about a, a super intelligent kind of guy. And as I said, he was considered to be the foremost authority on the Greek language in his day. And he said this. Brother Hagen told us that uh, Dad Nelson said this to the group of ministers, talking about this verse of Scripture. Is any sick among you? He said from the original Greek, it literally means is any of you beyond doing something for yourself? See, there are times where we're going to need help. But our first and foremost position should be to go to God for ourselves to get the help that we need. So he's saying, he, according to him, he said the question is, if there's anybody that's beyond getting results for themselves such that they need help, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now notice verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. This word save is the word sozo. It means heal. It means other things as well. But in this case, where he's talking about physical sickness and affliction. The word save would have to mean the word heal. Notice it's not the elders that make the difference. Notice it's not the anointing with all that makes the difference. Those are rituals or anointing with all is a ritual that has meaning for the jews you don't find anything in any writings to the gentile church about anointing with oil because anointing with oil was not part of the the history of any of the gentile nations but it did mean something to the jews the jews would anoint things with oil to separate them for the service of god well paul tells us that we're bought with the price Therefore, glorify God in our spirits and in our bodies, which are God's. In other words, Paul is identifying that the blood of Jesus was shed not just for our spiritual well being, not just for forgiveness of sins, but also it was shed for our physical bodies. So, just as James is encouraging Jews to enter into the anointing with all at the hands of the elders signifying that their bodies belong to God. Paul tells us the same thing by the Holy Ghost. But it's not the oil that saves or heals the sick. It's not the elders that save or heal the sick. It's the prayer of faith. Now this word prayer is a little different word. It's not the same word that's used in Mark 11:24. 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray... Believe that you receive them and you shall have them. That's not this word. That word in Mark 11, 24 is more of a a general term which literally means worship. This word that's used, the prayer of faith, this word is a vow or declaration. I want you to understand that the church is not required to ask God for healing the reason that we're not required to ask God for healing is because healing already belongs to us. You wouldn't have to ask God for salvation, meaning forgiveness of sins, because Jesus already took that. But instead, we just simply have to accept what he took as for us, confess him as our Lord, and enter into the family of God. In the same way, you can enter into divine healing and health By accepting what Jesus has already done for you. By the blood that he's already shed. See I think too many Christians have the idea that God will heal them. God already has. And we need to call things that be not as though they were. So that we're in agreement with what God said through his word. So here the vow or declaration of faith shall heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice that unworthiness or guilt or guiltiness is not sufficient reason to keep you from being healed. See, all the things the devil may try to tell you and me about our unworthiness to have what God's word says is ours. The blood of Jesus has made us worthy. He's made us righteous. It's not even a question in the mind of the believer who knows and understands and who has filled their heart with the truth of the fact that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. This goes back to what the Bible says, how can God withhold anything from us when he's already given us his son? Well, everything that Jesus accomplished for us Including healing, according to what we're talking about right now, already belongs to us. How could he withhold healing from us when Jesus was given for us to shed his blood for not only our eternal life, but also the healing of our flesh? He goes further in verse 16. He says, Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Brother Hagen pastored three different churches over a span of 12 years during the early part of his ministry before he really got over into the things God had for him to do. And the, the last church that he was in, he told a story about how healing worked in their church. He didn't have healing services every week. And this was back in the the late 30s, early 40s. Well, that was a long time ago now, wasn't it? (laughs) He talked about these things like they were just yesterday. But he said this. He said in that last church that he pastored, this was before World War II which dramatically changed the face of America one of the biggest impacts that it had was there were so many during World War II there were so many of the men that were shipped out to serve in the military that women almost overnight had to start going to work had to take jobs Many of of these jobs were factory jobs and things that the, the men had departed from because of their military service. But these were the days where women stayed home to be housewives and mothers more than anything else. And as a result, there was a, just by virtue of the fact that it was a slower pace of life, that people were more sensitive, women at least, were more sensitive to the things of God back then than they are now. And so there was this unorganized, nobody tried to make it happen. He said himself that he wished he had been smart enough to think about doing something like this, but he didn't know. But he said whenever somebody in their church would get sick, again, this is small town, Texas, but word would get around pretty quickly if one of the members of the church, members of the congregation, took sick in any way whatsoever. And people would just come to the church and pray. Again, small town USA, they'd walk the three or four blocks from the church to just come spend some time praying in the church. And he said they, because they saw the value of what they were doing, they would continue to pray for the sick until the sick got well and it wasn't like it took a long period of time he said the longest time that he remembers for anybody to receive their healing was three days and it's not like there was praying around the clock that was taking place either it's just people came as they were able to and cared enough about their fellow church members church family to pray for their well-being Now, folks, I'm going to read these scriptures to you again, and I want you to see what the Bible is talking about when it comes to fellowship, when it comes to us being involved with each other and caring enough about each other. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. Confess your faults one to another. He's talking about having a relationship with each other in such a way that we maintain our love walk. This word false is the word sin. It means if we've done something wrong to somebody in our church family that we fix it. We make it good. Confess your faults one to another and pray ye one for another that you may be healed. Now he's talking about how things should work before somebody gets to the point where they're not able to do it themselves like in verse 14. He's saying this is how the church should stay well. That we should care enough about each other to maintain our love walk. Remember one of the causes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, one of the causes of people dying young and and being sickly was not discerning the Lord's body. Well there's two ways to look at discerning the Lord's body. One is to understand that Jesus took stripes upon his back. To provide and procure healing for our physical bodies. That's one way. But the other way to discern the Lord's body. Is to recognize that we're all part of the body of Christ. So we need to walk in love toward one another. We need to keep the, the, the air clean. And free from any sin. Or wrongdoing between us so here when it says confess your faults one to another and pray you one for another that you may be healed he's saying healing works in the church based in great part in our relationship with one another confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much Now the context, that's a principle that works in every area. I think it's the Amplified that says the effectual heartfelt prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic, in it's working. He's saying the the prayers of the church, not the ministry, but the church, the people in connection with one another, family members, He's saying that prayer makes tremendous power available. It'll bring healing to the congregation. But we live a different life nowadays. Everybody's busy. Everybody's more concerned about themselves than they are the other people. Now folks, I don't claim to have an answer for this. I don't know how you change it. But there's an element of this that the church has lost. There's an element of the power of God that the church has lost in this modern day because we're too into ourselves. We're too quick to expect somebody that's got something special from God to bring the answers for sickness and disease to the church. We've compartmentalized things to such a degree that we expect the ministry gift. And even, uh, even a reduced ministry gift to somebody that has a special anointing for, uh, to heal the sick or something along that line. That's their job. But the Bible says it's our job. It says it's our job. What would happen if the church, any church... Went to the ones that they knew were sick. Afflicted. Battling sickness and disease. And just on their own. Took it upon themselves to pray for that person until they got well. What do you think would happen? Would God not answer those prayers? Any chance that he wouldn't honor his word on that? One of the things Smith-Wiltersworth used to do when he'd go into meetings is he would identify the people that were in wheelchairs or on cots or whatever the specific condition might be that limited them so that everybody knew that they were facing something major or tragic. He'd start with them. And he'd ask the people, you don't think God's not going to honor his word, do you? He had such a confidence in God's word. And again, it was part of the ministry that he had. But I think even as much or more so, it was just a confidence that was developed in God's word by meditating and speaking God's word into his heart. What I'm trying to get across to you folks is that I firmly believe that there's a healing power available to the people of God when we get back to caring about one another. I'm 60 something years old. I'd have to do the math. I'm not sure. I've never experienced a church that was like that. Have you? I'd like to say ours is, but we're not. We've got a whole generation that doesn't know this kind of church and therefore that hasn't seen this kind of power. That's what I'm praying about. I'm praying about getting back to the place where the healing power is recognized and understood to be in the congregation not just in some minister with a special call if you want to help me pray about something pray that and the prayer of faith shall heal the sick not might not these are your best odds The prayer of faith shall heal the sick, and the Lord shall raise them up. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We see what you have provided for us through your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that there is no situation, no circumstance, no obstacle in our path that can stop us because of who you are. Lord, turn us into the kind of people, the kind of church where healing flows like a river, Quicken our hearts, Lord, on things that we could and should do to bring healing to the ones in our congregation, our church family, that are facing sickness and disease. We know it's your will for all of your children to be well. So therefore, we must conclude and believe that there's a way for us to get to that place where there is none that are sick among us. Thank you, Lord, for showing us. Thank you for quickening our hearts. Thank you for stirring the love of God on the inside of us so that we care for those that are fighting sickness and disease, even as we would care if it were us. We are in their place. We bless you, Father. We thank you for bringing to pass all that we've asked and for doing even greater things than what we've asked for because of your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You and